thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arney. Hello. Our scientists this week have made the world's smallest piano. We'll be hearing how the strings are literally just a few atoms across. Also, sticking with the very small, molecular movies. We'll be hearing how scientists can now watch individual parts of molecules flittering and flattering around. And bacteria have joined the battle against cancer. Scientists have found that bacteria can now help chemotherapy drugs to home in on tumours. Cat. And also this week, we'll be exploring the science of brain repair, including how to overcome paralysis caused by spinal cord injuries and how to treat blindness caused by damage to the retina. We're going to be joined later by Jeff Raisman and Robert McLaren, who are going to tell us all about their work and all about how we may have better brains and better nerves in the future. So if you've got any questions for them on those subjects or anything at all about science, technology, medicine, call in now or email us and we'll be giving out those details shortly. And if you're in an experimental mood, this week's Kitchen Science is all about aerodynamics and we've got an awesome experiment for you to try at home. If you're going to, you're going to do this, you're going to need a hairdryer and a ping pong ball to take part. And if you're the first person to get through on the phone with the correct results, you're going to win a prize. A fabulous prize, I'm sure. It's probably Chris's book. How much better could it be? Anyway, another reason to get in touch with us is to have a go at our teaser. And this week we want to know, what is the name of the gas that comes out of a volcano and smells like rotten eggs? The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Well, finally, scientists at Delft University in the Netherlands have invented the nano piano. Sounds brilliant. Well, it's not quite as good as that. But they've successfully made and tuned the world's smallest wires. Um, so like piano wires or guitar wires. They've made these tiny wires of carbon nanotubes. That's just two nanometers in diameter and one micrometer long. So that's two millionths of a millimeter by a thousandth of a millimeter. They're pretty small. And so the team attached these carbon nanowires to electrodes and put one tiny layer of silicon. And you can pass an electrical current through them, which makes them vibrate in the same way that uh, a string vibrates in a piano when you pluck it. And if they change the electric current, you can effectively tune the wire so it will, it will vibrate, it will resonate. It's all very well if you're a nano-sized person, you want to listen to that. But why, why is this helpful scientifically? Well, it is more important than making a nano piano or the, uh, the world's tiniest violin to play just for you, Chris. Um, the tuning technology <laughs> the tuning technology could actually be used to make nanosensors. So, for example, you could hang something tiny like a, a virus particle off the end of your nanowire and measure the, the change in vibration of the wire, which would reflect how heavy the particle is. So it's basically making a, a tiny nanosensor. Which is it's quite similar to a piece of research that was done at the University of Harvard in the US. It was announced about a year or so ago, and it was a guy called Charles Lieber. And what he was doing was, as you say, suspending particles on these fibres. And depending upon how big the particle is, the fibre resonates or vibrates at a slightly different frequency. 
and this enables you to identify what you've locked on because the way they were doing it was by gluing antibodies onto their nanowires and the antibodies are obviously very specific for certain things so they were doing it with a wire that would recognise say flu and one next door that could recognise an adenovirus and one next door another kind of cold virus then all you had to do was sort of smear a blob of snot on it and the viruses would lock on to whichever wire had antibodies against those virus particles and it would change the resonance of that wire and then they could tell really on the basis of the antibody locking on what was bound on what bit of the sensor. And it's staggering to think of what people are doing now at this absolutely tiny molecular level, a really incredibly small, smaller than we can imagine. But people are probably thinking, you know, why is that useful? But the, the thing is, when you go to the GP... Most doctors have to say to patients, well, we think it's a virus, but we don't really know what it is. And then they have to send nose swabs and throat swabs to people like me in the hospital. And we have to spend ages growing these things in the lab and then trying to use other techniques to diagnose these illnesses. This is really ushering in something called near patient monitoring, isn't it? Where you can have a little, I suppose the size of these things would no more than a TV remote control in the end. And you could have that sitting on the desk next to the doctor and you could literally diagnose things like viral infections there and then and send people home rather than having to tell them to wait six weeks until they get the diagnosis and by then they're either dead or better, let's face it. Well, they'll still tell you to go home with two paracetamol and sit on the sofa. There's not a lot you can do about a virus, but talking about things that are very, very small, this is an exciting week for molecules that want to go and be in the movies, turning molecules into movie stars, if you like, because there's a researcher at the Zurich University called Peter Hamm, and what they've managed to do for the first time is see individual molecules moving around, because... A major problem with science is that when you're seeing things that are that small, it's impossible to watch them in real time. And when you watch things like enzymes, enzymes are nature's catalysts. They break things down and they build things inside the body. But the way they do that is by opening and closing their jaws, if you like. They have an area of the molecule that opens and embraces something called the substrate, the thing it wants to work on, and it then chemically modifies that and then releases it again. Like Pac-Man. That's right, it's a bit like Pac-Man. So how would you actually see what that enzyme was doing and as you could watch it because at the moment the only way we can do this is by making a crystal of the protein and and literally a solid crystal and then firing x-rays at it to see what the x-rays do and that gives you some clues as to the structure of it well what peter ham and his colleagues have been able to do is to use a technique called infrared spectroscopy and this relies on the fact that certain chemical groups absorb infrared radiation in a certain and very specific and almost fingerprint-like way. So what they're able to do is to glue down a molecule and then watch it with two beams of infrared or near-infrared radiation and then see how that radiation gets soaked up or reflected. And on that basis, they can work out what individual chemical groups are doing in this molecule and see what this molecule is doing in real time. So at room temperature, how it's moving around and how it's structurally changing, which will give us huge clues in the future if we can extrapolate this to big molecules like enzymes more closely how they work. I mean, this is really important because even just in the past five years, scientists have developed microscopy techniques so you can follow molecules moving around in cells. But obviously that's still on a much bigger scale. You know, this is a, a hundredfold or more smaller. So it's, um, I think that's really significant. I can't wait to see little molecules of... Uh, uh, movies are little molecules moving around. Do you reckon, though, that if they were going to show these at the cinema, you'd have to give them a certificate? <laughs> I think you'd have to pay people to go and watch well, them. That, it'd have to be an X-rated certificate, wouldn't it? Ooh. <clears throat> anyway, moving swiftly on, 
Um, this is the Naked Scientist Bad Pun Show. Um, I've got a, a lovely story about how bling could be used to help detect cocaine. So this week we've been hearing about um, the radioactive polonium poisoning that's affected um, and killed, in fact, Russian Alexander Litvinenko. But that kind of poisoning is extremely rare, and most often doctors are faced with patients who've been poisoned with common substances or have taken drugs overdoses. So it's really important for a doctor to know as fast as possible what this patient's taken, uh, and so they know what to do, because literally minutes could, could save this person's life. So um, at the moment, you have to send samples to the lab and, and find out what's wrong with them. But a team of scientists at the University of Illinois have developed a simple test technology that um, basically is, is like a pregnancy test. You just dunk this strip into a sample of saliva, urine or blood plasma. And the secret behind the strips is, is bling technology. Basically, it's gold particles. Um, you fix these gold particles to tiny bits of DNA. These are called aptamers. And the DNA has been selected because it very specifically sticks to the, the poison or the drug that you're trying to detect. Now, in, in the test strip, these DNA aptamers, they stick very tightly to gold particles. But when you dip the stick into a sample that's got the, the poison or the drug you're interested in, then the aptamers stick to the poison and release the gold. So they sort of float away. Exactly. The gold particles float away um, and they get trapped in the stick and they, they are visualised as a little red band. Now, at the moment, the team have developed this test um, to detect cocaine. So you can detect cocaine overdoses in samples of, of blood and, and urine. But they think they're currently screening libraries of lots and lots of these different DNA aptamers to find DNA aptamers that stick to all kinds of drugs, poisons, all this sort of thing. You could also use it for diagnostic tests to, um, to find key molecules in the body and monitor those, and also even for monitoring toxins in the environment as well. And polonium, will it bind to that? Um, I don't think it's going to bind to radioactive polonium. <laughs> I don't think it's an incredibly common poisoning. Well, the, the thing is that... It's, it's amazing how you find that these tiny molecules and tiny structures can make a big difference. But who would have thought that you could potentially find one way to treat cancer in a tiny bacterium? Because researchers at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, writing in the journal Science this week, have discovered that there's a certain bug, and it's called Clostridium novii NT. And it's actually a relative of the same family of bacteria that cause tetanus when you're infected with them. But this kind of bacterium may hold the key to targeting cancer therapy just to tumours because people who are being treated for, for cancer often get nasty side effects of the chemotherapy because we're forced to give very big doses of anti-cancer anti drugs which not only hurt the cancer but they hurt the person as well. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just target the therapy to where it's needed in the body, the cancer, and leave other tissues unaffected? Well, this bacterium might help to do that because what the researchers were able to show is that it's got an enzyme that this bacterium makes and it's called liposomase. And this liposomase can break down tiny fatty packets of material called liposomes. So what they were able to do was to package a cancer drug inside these little fatty bubbles, these liposomes, inject them into, into mice that were, have, that were affected by colon cancers. And at the same time, they gave some spores of these bacteria. Now, the bacteria homed in on the cancer, and the reason they did that is because the centre of the cancer doesn't have very much oxygen in it, and these particular bacteria don't like oxygen. So when the, when the little fatty blobs of drug went past the tumour, the bacteria in the tumour activated the drug, but in other tissues, the drug wasn't activated in the same way. So it just homed in on the cancer and killed it. And when they followed these mice up, at the end of the study, 65% of the animals were still alive 90 days later. 100% of them got better from their cancer. That's compared with 
most of the other animals in the control groups, animals that were given just the drug or just the bacteria, being dead within 40 days. So in other words, the animals that were treated with this new approach live twice as long. And so how do scientists think they can use this? Well, because they've now got the gene from this bacterium that makes this liposomase enzyme, it might be possible to link it to some kind of antibody that will enable it to home in just on a cancer, and then you could play the same trick. You could give the drug locked away in these tiny fatty packets. The drug would only become available in the cancer, and therefore you could give much lower doses of chemotherapy, and you could spare other tissues in the body all the harmful side effects. That's absolutely fascinating, because currently that kind of antibody-directed uh, gene therapy is being used to, in clinical trials, early trials, to, t- to see if it can treat cancer. So potentially very useful technology. Anyway, we want tonight your calls. We want them in now on anything to do with the brain, brain repair. Um, are we going to see people walking again after spinal injuries? What happens when we lose our eyesight? Will we be able to rebuild our eyeballs? We want your calls now. We also want you to call in to have a go at our teaser. This week we want to know what is the name of the gas that comes out of a volcano and smells like rotten eggs? The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. It is The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and with Dr Katz. And now we're going to go to Kitchen Science, where this week Derek, Hugh Hunt, Nick and Christian, who are at Norwich School, are going to find out about the aerodynamics of a ping-pong ball. Hello, Derek. Hello there. Welcome to Norwich School. We're here this week to do some more fantastic science experiments, and this one can be done at home, so please listen out for all the different apparatus that you need. It's all very simple. Uh, with me, of course, is Hugh Hunt, who's, uh, who's kind of designed this experiment for us. So just quickly, what is it we're going to be doing today, Hugh? Well, we're going to be levitating ping-pong balls in midair. In midair, there you go. It's going to be absolutely magical, so just wait for that. And believe me, you can do it at home too, so that's cool. Also, uh, two volunteers from Norwich School who've come to help us, so I wonder if you could just quickly give me your, your names and what years you're in, please. Hi, I'm Nick, and I'm in Year 8. I'm Christian, I'm in Year 9. OK, good. Nice to have you with us, guys. Now, quickly, we're going to do some excellent science here. So do you guys like science? What about you, Nick? Yeah, I like science. I like seeing what different temperatures things will start to melt and burn at. All right, OK. We might be seeing some of that. Who knows? OK. And, uh, and also, Chris, what do you like about science? I like the pretty bubbles that you make. All right, OK. And, uh, well, thank you very much. OK, we haven't got any bubbles this time, but some very pretty stuff, magical stuff coming up. OK, then, now, if you'd like to do this at home, then listen up, because this is the stuff that you need. Firstly, you need a ping-pong ball, OK? So one of those kind of plastic balls. There you go. Hugh's got one there. That's absolutely fine. Also, a hairdryer, OK? Now, basically, um, to make this work a bit better, you can put a little bit of apparatus on it, which, uh, Hugh, what, what exactly can you do to make this work a little bit better? Well, it works best if the nozzle on your hairdryer is about the same size as a ping-pong ball. If your hairdryer is quite wide, then you might want to stick a drinks bottle, cut a drinks bottle in half across its middle and stick it over the end so that the air comes out the neck of the drinks bottle. And if the neck of the drinks bottle is about the size of a ping-pong ball, then that's ideal. It's like a funnel. Absolutely. So you kind of, yeah, you're, you're putting a funnel onto the, um, the uh, hairdryer. Of course, do be careful about uh, hairdryers being hot. We, we'd like them to be on, on as cool a heat as possible here as well. And don't keep plastic things on there too long because, you know, they can melt eventually. Now then, um, if you actually have an old school kind of vacuum cleaner which can be set to blow, then that will also work. But um, this can be done with a hairdryer perfectly well. And if, if you don't actually have any of those, you can even do it with a straw and, let's say, a smaller... Well, I think you can do it with a ping-pong ball, but also with a Malteser works quite well as well. OK, so hopefully you've got some of those things. Now then, Hugh is ready to tell us what to do with these things. So how do we actually do this then? OK, well, first thing is you get your hairdryer and you switch it on and you point it vertically upwards. And then you take the ping-pong ball and you try to balance it 
in the Airstream. OK, right, and, and then you've got to see what happens. Now, of course, we've got Chris and Nick here um, who are going to be doing this experiment later in the show when we come back to Norwich School. But what do you think is going to happen? Because, I mean, this ping-pong ball is very light and the hair is pretty strong. So, Nick, what do you think is going to happen? I think it will get blown in the air, but then it will fall off eventually. OK, and what about you, Chris? What's going to happen? I think it will be quite close to the airstream, but it will fall off eventually. OK, all right, so both Nick and Chris think the, the ping-pong ball is going to kind of get blown up in the air by the airstream, but it's not really going to stay there. OK, well, there we go. There's uh, some predictions there. And uh, we'd like you at home to try it, to see if what they say is right or perhaps something else will happen. Um, if you'd like to do it, then please get all those things together and, uh, and do call us, because if you can get the right result, then you can win a prize. So the number is 08459 and you can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com and uh, hopefully you've got all those things and can do that in the next half hour or so before we come back to Norwich School. So until then, uh, we will be going back to studio. So uh, until then, uh, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Derek. So what is it that happens? So just in case you missed it, you need to turn on a cool hairdryer so the air is moving straight upwards and then you put a ping-pong ball on the top. Phone up and tell us what happens if you think you know the answer. Number's coming up in just a second. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. And coming up very, very shortly, we'll be talking with Geoffrey Raceman about how you repair a damaged spinal cord. So people who are suffering from paralysis, why is it that when you damage the brain and spinal cord, it doesn't spontaneously repair itself? If you have any questions on that, you can call in now. And also we'll be talking to Robert McLaren from University College London, who's looking at repairing the damaged retina. So diseases that cause the retina to be damaged, how can we repair them so that people can have their sight restored? And we're also asking you to call in on our teaser, which is what's the smelly gas that comes out of volcanoes? We've had a few answers in already. Uh, Mr Meadows in Peterborough, I'm afraid you're wrong. Sybil in Sawston, you are wrong too. Um, on the, along the right lines, we have Andrew in Cambridge. Austin in Chelmsford, and on the email we have John Holes in Preston. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. And if you want to send us any emails, chris at nakedscientist.com. Got a nice one here from Liz who says... Your show is informative and entertaining. I drive with the Naked Scientists. I go to bed with the Naked Scientists nightly. I, I mean, presume not literally. Uh, and I cook with the Naked Scientists. I just love it. So thank you very much for that. That's very kind of you, Liz. And we've got one in here from Michael Yorshaw, who says, I'm a retired lawyer now pursuing a, doc a doctorate in molecular and cellular biology at UCLA in California. He loves the show and he listens to it as he walks between the home and the lab. And he says if we'd been around 60 years ago, he would have been inspired to take up science sooner. Um, I think even Chris is not quite 60 years old. Get out of it. I've got an email here from Josh who says, uh, Lady and gentlemen, presumably means us sort of collectively, greetings from Gardnerville, Nevada, near Lake Tahoe in the US. I was wondering what the properties of baking soda are, the active ingredient being sodium bicarbonate, that allow it to alleviate nasty odours in my refrigerator. By the way, I love the show. Your kitchen experiments remind me of a science show I used to watch as a kid called Mr Wizard. Please keep up the good work. Ah, oh, brilliant. I've actually been skiing near Lake Tahoe. It's very nice around there. Um, well, we've been chatting about this in the studio and we reckon that um, it's because uh, bicarb, bicarbonate of soda, is um, quite a weak... Um, it's, it basically can change the, the acidity of things. And the things that cause smells are generally very volatile chemicals. And they're usually um, these things called cyclical chemicals. They have uh, carbon rings and things like that in them. And basically, if you can do chemical reactions with them, with the, with the bicarbonate of soda, then they might change their properties and, uh, and become less volatile, basically. So you're not going to get so many smelly chemicals released into the air. 
Because sodium bicarbonate reckon. is alkaline, isn't it? So, yeah. So it'll probably pull any acid off of the volatiles and add some add some alkali, if you like, to alkaline groups on the on the bicarb mol- on the on the volatile chemical, and this makes it less likely to diffuse, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's the best thing we can come up with, but it does work because my parents always used to do that. Anyway, we've got a question here from Jim Greenstein, and he's in Solana Beach in California. And he says, I have a science question. A car across the street has a flashing blue security light that's very faint when you look straight at it. But when you look at it kind of sideways, the blue light's much brighter. Why is this, Chris? I was thinking about this, and I reckon it's just down to the fact that when you want to see colour, you're reliant on a different set of or a different population of photoreceptors in your eye to those which see in the dark. Because we have in our eyes two populations of light photoreceptors, in other words, cells that can turn light into electrical energy the brain can understand. In the daytime, and in order to see colour, you use a group of cells called cones. And cones come in a number of different flavours, and they see colour. So in other words, when light comes in, remember light is a mixture of all the different colours, and so you have selectively cones that respond to certain wavelengths of light. So that's your red, blue and your green. His light in the car across the road is a flashing blue light, he specifically says that, which means that it might be at a wavelength which he needs his blue cones to be able to see. Now, when we actually look at things very, very closely and fixate on them, you're using the part of the retina referred to as the fovea, the macula, which is where there's the greatest concentration of photoreceptors. That's why your vision there is very acute. But also that's where all the cones are, where the colour vision is, mostly. Now, during the night time, and also when you look in the periphery of vision, there are fewer cones in the periphery, and you mainly use what are called rods. And rods are much more sensitive to light, and that's why they're only used in the night time, but they don't tend to be able to decode colours. So when you look at this light out of the side of your eye, you're probably seeing it using rods that are helping some of the blue cones a little tiny bit because we know that rods can help cones a bit in under low light conditions. When you look straight at it, there are fewer of these very sensitive cells and more of the less light-sensitive colour-specific cells. So I think that's probably why you can see, see things more acutely in the dark out of the periphery of your vision if they're in, under low light conditions. But you can read things much more accurately in the centre of your vision. And your brain does amazing things, basically filling in the gaps and the colours in, in what you don't see. Um, and the human brain's incredible. We'll find out later how you repair it when it gets damaged um, and also how the eye might be able to be repaired when it gets damaged. So uh, stay tuned for that. Anyway, it's time now to go over to Bob and Chelsea for this week's science update. This week they're going to be looking at colour again but looking at how different cultures classify colour and how money really is the root of all evil. This week for The Naked Scientists we're going to tell you some new things we've recently learned about the brain, in particular how our brains help shape our societies. I'll talk about money, but first, Chelsea has a report about something all our brains seem to be able to agree on, color. Gertrude Stein said, a rose is a rose is a rose. Now, psychologists Delwyn Lindsay and Angela Brown of Ohio State University have proven that red is red is red. Using the World Color Survey, in which speakers of 110 different languages categorized colored chips, they found that people universally classify a color according to its position on the rainbow. In other words, Lindsay says any non-English speaker's word for red would include shades like burgundy, brick, and cherry. Perhaps their sample might extend a little bit into the pinks and a little bit into the oranges, but they certainly would not, for example, have a color name that would span two entirely different categories. 
But while basic color classifications seem to be hardwired into our brains, the actual number of color names and categories varies tremendously across cultures and languages. For example, Lindsay says some cultures have only two different color names: one for warm hues and one for cool hues. On the other hand, industrialized countries have far more color names. In very traditional cultures, in which objects within that culture could be identified on the basis of a number of different kinds of features, they would tend to use or have relatively few basic color terms. But as that culture advanced technologically, so would its Capacity to make artifacts or objects that could be distinguished solely on the basis of color, leading eventually to the hair-splittingly specific color names you see in clothing or paint catalogs. Thanks, Chelsea. Does money encourage self-sufficiency or selfishness? Yes, and yes, according to University of Minnesota consumer psychologist Kathleen Voss. In a series of nine experiments, Voss and her colleagues found that the mere suggestion of money through word games, pictures, or play money made people work longer on challenging tasks before asking for help. But it also made them less inclined to help others on similar tasks, donate spare change to charity, or even pick up somebody's dropped pencils. So it suggested that they just thought that everyone should be working toward their own goals without wanting help, just like they had done in the other experiments. Thinking about money also made people more interested in working alone or choosing solitary leisure activities over social opportunities. The bottom line is that, for better or worse, money appears to motivate self-reliance. And just as Voss's research dealt with money in the abstract rather than actual wealth, other studies suggest that even an academic interest in money can affect your behavior. Students and professors, both who are interested in economics, they donate less to charity. And they're more competitive when it comes to games that we play in the lab. The findings should give ample ammunition to both supporters and critics of capitalism. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back next week with more stories from the country where money is green. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald, and I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, naked scientists. Ah,、oh, thanks, Bob and Chelsea. If you want to find out more about what's going on in the world of science,、uh, you can go to Bob and Chelsea's website, which is www. Scienceupdate.com. Don't forget, our kitchen science experiment is ongoing. What happens if you put a hairdryer on cool, pointing up in the air, and put a ping pong ball in the path of the air? Does it blow all off to the side? Does it disappear? Or does it do what Daniel Judd in Sittingbourne suggests? And he's on the right lines. Have a go. If you're through with the right answer, you could be winning yourself a fantastic prize. Now we're talking this evening about the science of how to repair the nervous system, and one part of the nervous system that's very valuable to all of us is our vision, our eyes, our retina. And one person who's brought that a step closer to being reality in the last few weeks with a paper in Nature is Robert McLaren from the University College London, and he's also a consultant at Moorfields Eye Hospital. He joins us now. Hello, Robert. Oh, hello, Chris. Thanks for joining us on the Naked Scientist. So, tell us what it is you've managed to achieve. Well, well, thank you very much indeed for inviting me onto your program.、Um, What we、um, <clears throat> what we showed was、um, that it's if you transplant photoreceptor cells, which are the cells you mentioned earlier in the program, the light sensitive cells at the back of the eye,、um, if you transplant these cells at a certain critical stage during development, it's possible that these cells can make connections in a new host after transplantation, and and in sufficient numbers to restore、um, certain visual reflexes, such as the light pupil constriction reflex. So, what, what's the major problem with with the eye just repairing itself anyway? Why doesn't it repair in the same way that other tissues in the body can? Well.、Um 
The retina is a nervous tissue, pretty much like any other nervous tissue in, in the brain or the spinal cord. So we are faced with really with the same problems that spinal cord surgeons would have in that once there has been a significant injury to the nerves, it's very unlikely that they will make connections and recover function. Some diseases that, um, that I deal with on a routine basis, for instance, um, age-related macular degeneration, which is uh, the commonest cause of blindness in the UK, uh, that particular disease becomes irreversible once the light sensitive cells, the photoreceptors are lost and these photoreceptors are neurons and as such they, they don't regenerate or, or um, re-establish their connections um, as, as we would see with other parts of the brain. So your strategy to get around that problem is to replace the cells that have been lost? Um, absolutely. Um, and we're, of course, very excited by it because um, our research is very much geared towards eye disease. Um, and um, we, we're interested in, in treating uh, diseases that affect photoreceptors because there are simply so many of them, not just macular degeneration, but um, inherited retinal diseases such as retinitis pigmentosa. Um, these diseases have a big impact on, on patients who, who suffer loss of vision as a result of photoreceptor loss. And, and we're very excited at the prospect of actually Sometime in the future, I must stress that these uh, experiments that we've been doing are not yet at the clinical stage. It's still very much in the laboratory, but we're very excited by the prospect of actually being able to transplant these cells. And, and certainly now I think we know a little bit more about the properties of the cells and what we need to do to actually you know, achieve our goal of, of, of doing this in, in, in patients. People have tried using various stem cells and things to do what you've done in the past, but they didn't succeed. So why did they stumble when you managed to succeed? Um, well, that's a very interesting, a very interesting point, and I must say, um, stem cells can be used successfully in, in other ways. But we're interested in generating a specific cell type, the photoreceptor, which is a, as I said, it's a neuronal cell type. And if you take a, a very undifferentiated stem cell, that's simply a, a dividing cell that has yet to decide what kind of cell uh, it's going to become, um, and you put that into the retina, um, th those dividing stem cells, you know, won't necessarily know that they should become a photoreceptor or indeed any one of the perhaps 220 different adult cell types in the human body and, and our approach was, was somewhat different was to take cells that were about to become photoreceptors in other words the signals within the dividing cells had already been switched on the genes had been activated and transplant them at that specific critical time point um, if you like we're transplanting photoreceptors that are well immature photoreceptors that, that are really past the point of no return they're, they're going to become photoreceptors and, and that allowed us to focus more on the, the properties of these cells actually making connections. Now, you did this using mice, obviously, because, as you mentioned, you haven't got this into the clinical trial stage yet. But does this mean that you're going to be able to do this in humans? Because there aren't obviously going to be the potential opportunities to go to humans that are in very early stages of development and, and take photoreceptor cells from them. So how would you get around that problem? Um, well, that's absolutely right. And, of course, um, you know, our work has really been looking at the sort of practicalities of the transplantation end. But if you think about it, I mean, there are a number of adult stem cells in the human body, not just embryonic stem cells. Everyone thinks about stem cells as being uh, an embryonic cell type, but um, there are many cells around in the body that are dividing. And all of those cells uh, have identical DNA. And what makes one cell a photoreceptor, another cell a skin cell or, or, or a liver cell, is, is the genes that are switched on within those cells and um, if 
if people, scientists who are working in, in, in cloning and, and genetics uh, can find ways of manipulating the genes that are switched on, then it is not inconceivable that one could generate a primitive photoreceptor from an adult stem cell. And, and indeed, there are even uh, been reports uh, of retinal stem cells. These are stem cells actually in the eye that are dividing to make ocular tissues. And, and really, you know, one, one, one cannot make the assumption that it's going to be embryonic because there's a lot of research ongoing at the moment looking at adult stem cells, and it's a very, very exciting area. I suppose one of the really interesting things was that, that all of the signals are there in the eye so that the cells, when you put them in, A, know where to go, B, know what really to turn into, to mature into, and C, how to wire themselves up into the, into the retina so that they can restore the ability to see in the animals you tested. Yes, I mean, we are very fortunate in a way working with the photoreceptor because of all the neurons in the body, the photoreceptor is in one way is quite simple in that it only makes a connection in one direction because it's stimulated by light. Uh, a lot of neurons need to be connected in two directions, both upstream neurons and downstream via the axon. In the photo case of the photoreceptor, we really only need to make one connection. The distance for the connection is also very short. Um, within the retina, there are, there is, there are no um, in, or very few inhibitory proteins that would inhibit the growth of an axon. And I think one of the other things is that the actual photoreceptors sit in a natural anatomical cleavage plane, a natural space, where it's relatively easy to introduce these cells without damaging any of the surrounding tissues. And, and we even know from the studies during development that the pigmented part of the retina, which is called the pigmented epithelium, has a major role in helping the photoreceptors to orientate and develop and make connections. And it certainly seems to be that the, that the retinal pigment epithelium in the host retina, if we put the cells in at the right place at the right time, uh, are able actually to help, this, this epithelium is able actually to help these new cells make, make fresh connections. Now you can't ask a mouse whether it can see, you certainly can't ask it to read the chart that you'd be shown at the, op at the ophthalmologists or in the opticians to test your vision. How do you know that these mice are able to see again once you've done this? Uh, no, well, that's quite right. I mean, we were very interested to know what the level of vision was, and most importantly, we wanted to test a, a level of visual function that actually told us whether the brain was responding to the visual signals. So as well as the sort of fairly routine uh, physiological tests, we, we also actually looked at another test, which is the ability for the pupil to constrict. And we, we took um, congenitally blind mice that are, have, a, have a deficiency of the rod uh, photoreceptors, again, the, the cells that you mentioned earlier. Uh, these are the cells used for night vision uh, and for mice being nocturnal animals, they, they, they depend heavily on these cells. And we transplanted photoreceptors uh, into the retinas of these mice, and we were able to restore the light pupil constriction reflex. So essentially what we were doing was, if you shine a light into the eye, the pupil constricts, which is a normal thing that happens, and we were able to restore that reflex uh, with, the, with the transplanted cells. And, and uh, that, that really was proof, not, not just that the cells are in the retina and receiving signals, but that the brain is interpreting those signals, and signals are being then sent back into the eye to cause the pupil to constrict and I think that's pretty much as close as you can get with a mouse. That's Robert McLaren who's a consultant ophthalmologist is also um, at University College London. On the line is Connor who's in Tillingham who wants to actually ask Robert a question. Hi Connor. Hello. Hello you've got a question for Robert. Uh, yes please. Fire away. Yeah. Uh, could I just ask um, if the retina um, is grown on the back of the eye as a part of the back of the eye why does it seem to detach so easily under different conditions? Okay, Connor. Do you like uh, go ahead and answer that? Yes, please. Yeah. Um, basically, 
your retina, as I, as I said, um, that there is a natural anatomical cleavage plane between the retina, which is the nervous tissue, and the pigmented uh, layer, which is at the back of the eye. And retinal detachment is, is, a, is a different uh, situation. That's when there's a hole develops in the retina and fluid goes in between that space and, and, and the retina collapses and very much like having a, a, like having a puncture within the tube, the, the inner retina collapses down. So um, unfortunately that's just a natural property of the way the eye's been made. Fine. Okay, thank you very much. Connor, quick go at the quiz? Yes, please. The most efficient means of transport in, in, in terms of energy burn per mile moved is walking. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Uh, fiction. You're quite right. The most efficient means of transport is actually the bicycle. Um, 96% of the energy applied to a bicycle uh, is turned into motion of the bike. And to move one mile by bike takes 38 calories. To do the same on foot uses about 100 calories. Um, if you go in the train, it's the equivalent of 885 calories. Not you personally, but the train. Me, is, yes, yeah. obviously. Um, and by bus, it's 920 calories. And in a car, it's a staggering 1,860. So basically, get on your bike. Well done, Connor. Next question. The, the first mammals appeared about 200 million years ago during the reign of the dinosaurs. Fact or fiction? Fiction. No, fossil evidence actually suggests the first mammals appeared in the form of tiny shrew-like creatures about 200 million years ago um, and spent the first 135 million years of their life trying to get out of the way of dinosaurs. So, uh, bad luck, Connor. Thanks for joining us, Connor. One out of two. Bye-bye. Is the Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Cat, and if you'd like to ask us any questions, we're talking about how to repair the damaged retina, and later we'll be talking with Jeff Raceman about how to repair the damaged spinal cord in people that have spinal injuries and paralysis. Now, uh, Robert, I've got a couple of other questions here for you. Chris is in Daventry, says, I have had a detached retina in 1980. Although it was repaired in 1982, would it be possible to make it better than it is now? I, n I currently have monocular, vi uh, monocular vision. Um, well, Chris... Um it's very difficult for me to answer that question because your retina may be detached and, and there may be other reasons why you can't see out of the eye. Um, certainly, if you do have anything there that's changed in terms of your vision or that the vision has changed recently, then I certainly would advise you to have an eye checkup with your local um, ophthalmologist. Um, I think, unfortunately, though, as, as regards stem cell treatments or anything like that, uh, I don't really think there's going to be anything available uh, for the next few years. Um, I would be more inclined in your situation to make sure that your other eye is checked on a regular basis and that we make sure that we maintain the vision that you have at the moment. Got a very quick one for you, Robert. Uh, Mike's in St. Osith and says he has a lazy eye. It can't be rectified because it's something to do with the brain not connecting with the eye properly. He says, why can't that be fixed in general terms? Not just him specifically, but in general terms. Um, well, it's very difficult to change the connections within the brain. We're looking at, in fact, in a lazy eye, a relatively normal retina and, and optic nerve. It's actually the connections in the brain, and there are some... 10 to the power 10 to 10 to the power 11 neurons in the brain. Each of these may have 50 plus or even 100 different connections. You can imagine the various, uh, you know, how many potential connections there are to rewire and remodel. And I think really at the moment that's, that's pretty much beyond what, what we can do. Thank you very much, Robert. That's Robert McLaren from Moorfields Eye Hospital and University College London.
We've had some answers in on our teaser. Um, along the right lines is Bill, who's in British Columbia in Canada. So, well done, Bill. Um, not right, I'm afraid, Steve Brunston in Harwich. Um, on the right lines is Stephen, who's a microbiology student in Glasgow. And yes, he should know the right answer. Um, not right, I'm afraid, is Betty in Northampton. And um, certainly not right is Vincent in Essex. Anyway, if you want to have a go at our teaser, this week what we want to know is what is the name of the gas that comes out of a volcano and stinks of rotten eggs? And if you get the chemical formula right, you get an extra bonus point. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. We've had a, a call from Miss Talbot in Cambridge and she was answering our kitchen science experiment. I don't know if she's had a go or not. You take a hairdryer, point the, the ru- rushing air upwards, uh, hopefully with the hairdryer on cool, and you put a ping-pong ball in the path of the air. What happens to it? She says it will bounce up and down. Mm, not bad. If you've got an idea, 08459 25 2000, first person through with the correct explanation and answer, goes into the hat and you could be winning a prize. And I'm going to give you a signed copy of my book, Naked Science, which will make a fabulous Christmas present with my signature in it. It's a pearl beyond price. But uh, let me introduce now our other guest this evening, who's um, Professor Jeff Raceman from University College London. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for coming in. Hi. Thank you. Now, your work largely looks where we've looked at the eye. You're working at the other end of the body, the spinal cord. Why is it such a problem when the spinal cord gets injured? Why doesn't it just repair itself? Well, there's a number of opinions about that. Uh, And the answer is we don't know. But the idea that we have is that the spinal cord attempts to repair itself, but the damaged nerve fibres are unable to grow back across the injury. It's not that they're dead. In fact, they are trying to grow. But the pathway that they need to grow has been destroyed by the injury. So what you're saying is that wherever there's a a lesion or a cut or a bit of damage in the spinal cord, this creates some kind of impenetrable barrier that the tiny nerve fibres just cannot bridge. Yes. Basically, the nerve fibres in the spinal cord run along a, a kind of pathway cell rather like railway lines or tram lines. And when the damage occurs, these lines are disrupted, they're opened up, and a scar forms which closes off the pathway. So although the nerve fibres have the ability to grow, they're not provided with a pathway to grow along. But there are quite a few nerve fibres in the spinal cord. I mean, a conservative estimate for for just one of the motor pathways is that there's a million fibres in it. So how can you possibly relay that roadway for them to be guided to where they need to go? Well, you can't relay the roadway in such a way that everything will grow back. Uh, What we are trying to do, and it's only at the experimental stage, this is only in animal experiments, is to provide a pathway and see what happens. Now, in, in our situation, what we have found is that less than half a percent of fibers grow back along the pathway we provide. It sounds very small, but the function that is brought back by that small number of fibres is very large. What's special about that 5% then? A half a percent. Sorry, what's special about the half percent? Is there something special about them that means they're the ones that want to grow? And and if so, do they hold the key to why the other 99.5% won't? Unlikely. What's likely to happen is that a small amount of signal is carried through by these. A signal is carrying it across uh, to carry out the function 
and the animal, and we hope in future when we do it with people, the person can relearn to use that very small amount of signal. But what I'm getting at, Jeff, is half a percent of fibres regrow, but the other 99.5% don't. So what's special about the half percent that enables them to, to get around this problem or, or to, to grow back, and the 99.5% that don't, why not? It's probably completely random. The pathway is destroyed. Now, imagine the pathway was a, was a great 12-lane motorway. We've managed to relay a very small amount of it, uh, a, very, a very constrained pathway. So those fibres that are lucky enough to find their way onto it can get through. The rest don't. If we could lay a better bridge than we do, and that's the sort of thing we're trying to do, then you could get even more fibres growing back. And what sort of distances are we talking here? You know, how, because when, when someone, for example, has a spinal injury, they could just have a very a, a small injury or it could be quite a large crushed area. I mean, how far can you make these nerve fibres grow? Now, we're talking about experiments in animals, rats. The injuries are very small indeed, one millimetre. And the, the fibres will grow across that distance. We don't have... At the, we do it by transplanting cells, a kind of adult stem cell. Now, we don't have enough cells available to make larger bridges... Why do you need to put cells in the first place, though, Jeff? Because you said that the scar that's made, the damage, seems to seal the, the area and stop these uh, nerve fibres being able to go through. But why do you need to put cells in, and what do they do to, sub, to or surmount that problem? Imagine that it's a motorway, a freeway, travelling over bridges, and half of it falls away in an earthquake. The only way that the cars are going to get across that gap is if you can relay the roadway. Now the roadway in the nervous system is made of cells, living cells. So to repair the roadway you have to be able to transplant the cells in such a way as to bridge the gap. So these are more support cells rather than nerve cells themselves? They're not nerve cells, so, that, yes. So you're laying a, a bridge really of these supporting cells that tell the nerve cells where to grow across? If it was an old-fashioned road, we're laying the cobblestones. <laughs> yes, and, we, and we're repairing the road. What you want is the cars, or in, if it's an old-fashioned road, the horse-drawn cars to get across it. They're the nerve fibres. How do you actually get these cells into the nervous system? Do you have to quite literally open up the entire spinal cord, which is quite a stupendously big thing to do, and then put the cells in individually where you need them? Or, or are they more intelligent than that? You have to be able to put the cells in the place that you want them. That doesn't mean opening up the entire spinal cord. It may mean, uh, for example, in our situation, penetrating it with a very fine uh, needle. An injection. Needle, an injection of cells. So what evidence have you got that this actually works at the moment, Jeff? doing this? What we have at the moment is uh, a rat model. And we have shown that with injuries that, for example, uh, impair the use of, of the limbs, say, uh, in, in climbing or in, in taking pieces of food, when we transplant the cells, the nerve fibres grow back across that injury and those functions come back again. So we can repair this uh, experimental model both anatomically 
in structure and also functionally. So if you didn't put the cells in, then the rats can't make these limb movements. They, that, they, that, that function only returns when the cells are put in. The function only returns if you transplant the cells. I mean, here's, here's the $64,000 question. Mm-hmm. How far do you think we are away from seeing this in, in the clinic being applicable to humans who've had spinal injuries? Well, to, to answer that, let's think of the steps that will have to be taken, and some of which we're taking. The first is, do these cells exist in humans? And the answer is they do. We've shown that, and others. The second is, can we get them in a patient in a reasonable way? And the answer to that is, yes, we can get them from the lining of the nose. Okay. So we can obtain these cells. Why are they in the lining of the nose? Well, that's the reason we went there in the first place. So you can get to them? Well, no, no. As you said, the... Brain and spinal cord do not repair after injury. But the nerve fi- the only nerve fibres which continually repair throughout life in the adult nervous system are the, those concerned with the sense of smell. Oh, so yes. they have a special pathway, a roadway, which can repair itself. So can you get enough of them, Jeff, in order to make a repair? Because the human spinal cord is pretty large. The number of nerve fibres in the bridge of my nose is not... Is it possible to get enough of these cells in order to make a decent repair in a human? That's a question we'll have to meet when we get there. But we are taking these cells from an adult stem cell, which means that it can divide, and in tissue culture it can make more. So you could grow them in the lab, potentially? We do grow them in the lab. Unfortunately, we still, and, and there are several groups doing this, we still only get a small expansion, three, perhaps threefold. But if, as you say, you only need a very small number of cells to make some kind of functional connection, then potentially that's better than nothing. Indeed. We are hoping to be trying out human uh, cells within the next year or two in very small injuries of the type that we can, where we can hope to get enough cells from the patient. If we can take that step, then we can demonstrate these cells exist in the human, we can obtain them, and they are safe to put in. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. It is the Naked Scientists with Chris and Kat, and we've been talking this evening about how you repair a damaged nervous system, including a damaged eye. But we also asked you, can you tell us what happens if you take a hairdryer, point it at the air, put a ball in the, in the airstream and see what happens to it. What's the explanation? Well, Daniel's in Sittingbourne. He's had a go. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What did you discover? Um, when the hairdryer went, the ball went up about three inches, yeah. and it started spinning. But it stayed in the airstream, yes? It stayed in the same... Let's go back to Derek and see if you got it right. You stay on the line, Daniel, and we'll see if you're right. right. Well done. Stay there. Derek, has he got it right? Hello there, welcome back to Norwich School and uh, I'm here with Hugh Hunt who set up the experiment today and also Chris and Nick who are literally itching to do this experiment. Uh, Nick is actually holding the hairdryer um, which is pointing upwards with a kind of bottle attachment on it. Chris is there with the ping pong ball ready so basically we're nearly ready to go. Hugh, why don't you just tell them what to do? Well, uh, Nick, you're holding the hairdryer, pointing it straight up. Hold it really vertical, really still. I'm going to switch it on and then Chris, you try and balance the ball in the airstream. Okay, and tell us what you see, Chris. Oh, it's balancing perfectly, and it's bobbing up and down with the airstream. Okay, and and kind of in what way is it moving in the airstream as well? 
it's moving all over the place, really. It's wobbling slightly. Yeah, it is kind of wobbling around. But, but Nick, I mean, I remember you guys were thinking that it would fall off. Does it look like it's going to fall off? Um, no, it looks like it's staying pretty stable, except going up and down. OK, what do you reckon? You impressed? Yeah. All right, there you go. We've actually managed some magic here, some, some uh, kind of levitation in midair of a ping-pong ball. And it really is staying there. It's about, I don't know, between... It's bouncing up and down a little, but it's between, let's say, six and ten inches above the nozzle that we've got. Now, the question is, of course, Hugh, um, why is this happening? Because it's not really what we expected. So, so what's going on here? Well, it's, uh, it's an example of what is called the Coanda effect. And it's an effect that essentially means that air, when it flows anywhere near a surface near a curved surface, would really much rather follow that curved surface and stick to it. Now, for example, if you were to take, let's say, a round milk bottle or a round tube, and if you blow over the top, hold the tube horizontally, and you blow over the top of the tube, what you'll find is if you put your hand sort of underneath the tube, you'll feel that the air has been deflected downwards. If you take the tube away you'll just blow straight forwards. But if you blow around over the top, uh, you'll feel the air deflected downwards. Now, perhaps uh, Chris and Nick could have a go at that. OK, so, um, Chris, what do you feel if your hand's below the, the bottle? I can actually feel his breath. Wow. OK, and if we remove it completely and Nick blows in exactly the same way... No, I can't feel anything. Yeah, so there we go. So, so Nick's breath actually goes horizontally when it's blown horizontally without the bottle there, but it actually quite li- the air quite likes to kind of follow the curve round of the bottle. OK, so I suppose that's what's happening with the ping-pong ball. Yes, well, now, this is very important because if you imagine that the air is flowing upwards out of the hairdryer and it's flowing around the ping-pong ball equally in all directions. Now, if the ping-pong ball were to try and fall out of the flow and move to the left then the air around the right of the ball will want to follow the ping-pong ball around, and so the air will also tend to move to the left. Now, there's a very important law. It's called Newton's third law of motion, which says that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. OK, and um, I think we, let's dwell on this for a moment because we've got a good way to explain this. So Chris and Nick, um, we've got something that we can get you guys to do. Hugh, what should they do? Well, I want Chris and Nick to face each other. Okay, and I want you to stand on your heels. Now, uh, Nick, I'd like you to give Chris a little push and see what happens. Okay, um, um, what what kind of did you feel there when that happened, Chris, when you tried to push Nick over? I began to lose my balance and eventually I fell over backwards. Yeah, okay, so you were kind of trying to push Nick backwards, as in backwards for Nick, but you ended up falling backwards as well, obviously not actually falling, because we're all very safe here. But but yeah, so so what did we see there? Well, uh, an action had an equal and opposite reaction. So let's imagine, then, that the Coanda effect is encouraging the air to move around the ball to the left. Well, if the air is being pulled to the left, the ball must be being pushed to the right. So that means that the ball, if it were to move to the left, Coanda effect causes the air to stick to the ball and move around to the left as well, which pulls the ball back to the right again. And if the ball moves to the right the Coanda effect pulls the ball back to the left. So that's why we saw the ball wobbling backwards and forwards a bit, but essentially staying in the middle, because every time it tried to move to the left, it 
would move to the right and back again. OK, well, thanks for that explanation, Hugh. So there we go. That's how we managed to levitate a ping-pong pool in the kind of vertical stream of air going upwards from a, a, a hairdryer. Chris and Nick, um, does that all make sense, Chris? Yeah, it made perfect sense. It's great. OK, we always like to hear that. So, Nick, did you like the experiment? Yeah, it was great, and it made perfect sense. Oh, good. I'm very, very glad, actually. And are you, gonna, are you guys going to try and do this at home now as well? Because I can imagine if people do not expect what's going to happen, they'll think you're a bit of a magician, actually. What do you think, Chris? Definitely. OK, and yourself? Yeah, I'm going to try it and also turn the hair dry and see if it stays up. OK, well, that's just a quick point we could end on, isn't it? But, I mean, I don't think we've got time to show it, but if people do try this at home and actually tilt the hair dry, can, can they keep the ball in the air? Well, that's the, perhaps one of the most remarkable parts of this, that if you do tilt the hair dryer even as much as 45 degrees from the vertical the ball will still say stay magically levitated. I think there are some magic shows waiting to happen all across the east of England here. So all using the power of science, of course. So, so there you go. Thanks very much to Hugh Hunt and to Nick and Chris as well at uh, Norwich School. And uh, we'll be back next time with some more science so that you can do it at home. So uh, until then, it's goodbye. Thank you very much to Derek, Hugh, Christian and Nick at Norwich School. Next week, the kitchen science crew are going to be in Northamptonshire where they'll be making a mess with milk and we want you to have a go at this. If you want to try it out, what you're going to need is a drop of milk and a few tablespoons of vinegar. It's as simple as that. I really wish we had video casting because then we could all see Derek's levitating balls. Anyway, the answer's on the teasers. Um, the answer we're looking for, the smelly gas that comes out of volcanoes, is hydrogen sulphide. That's H2S. And uh, we've had loads and loads of answers in, some right, some wrong, some arguing with our answer. But the winner is Roy in Tenerife, and he's in a place called Buzz Anada. I think I've pronounced that wrong. Well done. You've won yourself a copy of Naked Science, which is my book, very much in the flavour of The Naked Scientist. Lots and lots of fun and funky, short, quirky science stories from the last few years. A sort of a synopsis of discovery, if you will. So well done to everyone who took part this evening. I want to say well done to Daniel in Sittingbourne. As you heard, you got our kitchen science experiment spot on. So well done. I'll send you a copy of Naked Science too. I've got to say a very big thank you to our guests, Geoffrey Raceman and Robert McLaren from University College London. Also to our production team, Anna Lacey and Pet Minch for doing a fabulous job and for you at home for taking part. Next time we'll be taking any science question on anything because it's our science Q&A show. So please send your science questions in to chris at nakedscientist.com now. For more science in the interim, do give the Nature Podcast a listen at nature.com forward slash podcast. And if you're short of a Christmas present idea, then my book, Naked Science, is available now from our website, which is nakedscientist.com. Until next time, goodbye! Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.